Hello and welcome to the BBK Free Speech Podcast. My name's Deepti Patel and I'm an associate in the Adult Brain Injury Department at Bolt Burden Camp. So what do I do? I'm a solicitor that supports adults affected by brain injuries, whether that be through medical negligence or perhaps an accident that they've suffered. At BBK, we're not afraid to talk about really challenging topics that affect our clients. And a huge part of what we do is campaigning for change and raising awareness of really important conditions. So I'm very excited to announce that in our podcast today, I am joined by Sarah Crossland, who is um, absolutely incredible. She is a brain tumour survivor, as well as an endurance athlete, an author and a campaigner. So very welcome, Sarah. It's lovely to have you today. Thank you for having me. So first of all, you were diagnosed with an acoustic neuroma what what is one of those for our listeners so an acoustic neuroma is a brain tumor which grows on the eighth cranial nerve it is benign although i don't like to use the word benign and we'll get onto that very shortly it can press on um, surrounding nerves which then causes many problems so generally speaking uh, symptoms would present as balance issues, hearing loss mm. and fatigue. Moving on from that, as the as the tumour grows, um, it can cause other issues like vision problems, speech problems, swallowing issues, different things. And no two patients are the same. Mm. That That's really interesting what you said, actually. Also about the fact that it's benign and that word benign is being phased out now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I know you say you don't like using it. And we've spoken about this before. So one of the impressions I get, and actually the clients that approach me, a lot of them have these benign, non-malignant, they're non-malignant, they're non-cancerous. Mm-hmm. And the connotation with that, isn't it, is that for something that is benign, you're absolutely fine. I think you pioneered the Twitter hashtag, benign is not fine. Um, tell us about that. So if you look in the Oxford Dictionary, for example, um, benign is defined as gentle and kind or in the medical context, not harmful in effect. Um, There's often, as you say, that assumption that these benign tumours, these non-cancerous or non-malignant tumours are not harmful. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, in, in my case and in the case of many others, that's clearly not true. I would argue, you know, how can... A harmless tumour leave you with lifelong hidden disabilities and other issues. You know, that's clearly not kind and gentle or harmless. So, yeah, it is great to see that um, benign is being phased out by, you know, a number of medical professionals now. Um, Charities that I'm involved with also tend to class them as non-cancerous or Mm non-malignant. So that is great to see. Um, Sadly... Where benign is used, it causes a number of problems for people, particularly in employment, where an employer might consider that because it's harmless, a person is able to go about and do the job entirely as they did prior to diagnosis, which often is not the case. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And do you think then that, I mean, what what can we be doing to make sure that the importance of these types of tumours 
is recognised really with employers, with you know people on the street. We will go on to the hidden disabilities and the hidden invisible difficulties. Um, do you think we should just sort of be, stop saying that word or can be campaigning more and raising more awareness of these conditions? I think, as you say, the difference that we can all make is by talking about it as we're doing here today and obviously campaigning to see that change. Um, it is a challenge. Uh, sadly, you know, people will still go about their lives and think that benign is harmless. And I think the only way around that is to keep, you know, literally putting it in people's faces and saying, look, you know, benign is not fine. And that's why I tend to use that hashtag an awful lot. And <laughs> it's surprising, actually, the contact I've made with people purely through that, from yourself included. <laughs> but, you know, many people out there have had problems because of of the misconception that a benign tumour is is harmless. And actually, you have such a presence on Twitter. Um, You've got loads of followers and you've released a book, which I'm holding here, and our listeners will be very interested to read this, I'm sure. It's called Sickbed to Summits, um, and it's your personal, and I'd say it's a very honest and informative account of your journey from the symptoms you had to your diagnosis and then the amazing physical feats you've um, achieved. Where can our listeners get your book from? So it's available on Amazon or directly through me on my website, which is saracrossland.com. So that's S-A-R-A-C-R-O-S-L-A-N-D.com. You can get signed copies if you really wanted. It is widely available in a number of countries as well. So that's that's good because part of the reason I wrote that was to be able to reach more people who are going through this journey as well. I will definitely be getting my copy signed from you before you uh, by the end of this podcast today. Um, and thank you for joining us. I think, you know, your, your reading your book was almost as if I was opening a window into your mind. And, and I felt as though I was going on this journey with you. And it's incredibly personal. So anybody that's been affected by a brain tumour, um, whether it's cancerous or not, um, or you know somebody that's been affected, I really do recommend reading Sarah's book. It is 144 pages. I managed to devour it in two days um, because I was absolutely hooked. So please do go and access a copy of it. I thoroughly recommend it. So I wanted to focus on a few parts of your book, actually, and your own personal journey. The first is, um, so your life before your diagnosis, you were a busy mum and you had, you know, you were working and you classical musician and doing a few physical kind of feats as well. What was your life like before your diagnosis? As you say, it was busy. I've always been quite career driven. I worked as a high level teaching assistant specialising with children with special educational needs and disabilities. Quite ironically, one of the children um, I worked with prior to leaving had profound hearing loss. Um, And I really enjoyed it. It was challenging. It was physically demanding. That's part of the reason why I got into running, um, because we had a couple of children who liked to escape, shall we say. Mm -hmm. You know, as soon as they saw an opportunity, they were out of the classroom door and I couldn't keep up. So I embarked on the Couch to 5K programme. And that's how my running journey started. As you say, I've got three children. Um, At the time of my diagnosis, my two boys were sort of, one was approaching GCSEs, they had mock exams, the other one was right in the middle of them. It was a real challenge. Just trying to think what else I did prior to in my previous life. Um, As you say, I played the violin, so I was music lead in the school. Um, Previously, I'd played in a Philharmonic Orchestra, 
And all of that really was kind of in jeopardy when I received my diagnosis. And it's, I don't know if you agree with this, but it's the kind of life one almost takes for granted. You know, you get up, you go about your routine and you never really imagine that actually something can come along and change all of that. No, absolutely. I think in the space of two minutes, my life was turned upside down when I received my diagnosis. And it's almost, you know, people say, you know, you, you see your life flash behind, be in front of your eyes. And I was like, well, I kind of did because, you know, I received my diagnosis and my first instinctive thought was, well, what, what about my kids, my husband? And I've got loads that I want to do, mm. you know. And at that point, even though I thought I was doing what I wanted to do and doing lots of things, there was still so much that I hadn't even scratched the surface of that I just... You know, I was really upset that I didn't perhaps never get the opportunity to do it. So let's talk then a bit more about your diagnosis. Um, I'm sure our listeners will be really interested to know the kind of symptoms you are experiencing because my clients, for example, that have non-malignant brain tumours, I can't say that my clients have the same symptoms. You know, some of them might have hearing loss, some of them might have pins and needles, sensations. What kind of symptoms led you to get some medical help? Well, in a bizarre turn of events, I was diagnosed with um, an autoimmune condition called sarcoidosis at a very similar time. Uh, many of the symptoms, I think, overlapped, but I think by far the greatest one was fatigue, which I'd experienced for a while. But, you know, as anyone out there who's busy with life and work in general, you just push through it and you, and you keep getting up, you keep going to work and you keep doing all those things that you need to do every day. Then I developed a bit of a rash. No one could tell me what it was. It was just this really weird little rash that appeared and I wouldn't go away. It might fade, then it recurred again, then it would disappear. Then I developed joint pain. As I describe in the book, it was almost immediately after I had my dog put to sleep. So I'd spent the last night he was with us sleeping on the floor with him. I know, really sad. And the following day, I woke up with really painful joints and I just thought, you know, I'm getting too old for this sleeping on the floor malarkey. <laughs> um, and I, I just put it down to that, but it progressively got worse. And initially, my hips were affected, then my knees, then my ankles, my feet, my fingers. I struggled to drive into work and, you know, to drive my car. And I went backwards and forwards to my GP. She thought... Initially, it was an autoimmune condition of some sort. So we ran lots of tests and everything came back negative. One we looked into was Lyme disease. Um, I'd been bitten by a tick the previous summer and it was thought maybe that had lain dormant and then all of a sudden reared its head. But no, that came back negative as well. Then a couple of weeks after that, I began to develop a change of sensation in my face. So it was almost... It felt slightly numb, but it wasn't entirely numb, but it just did not feel right. So I went back to my GP. And also at that time, I remember that I started to see double on my left. Mm. Um, so like my peripheral vision on my left, when I glanced to my left side, it was double. So I went back to my GP and I think that was the red flag for her. And she spoke to a neurological consultant at a nearby neurocentre. They advised me to be admitted there and then for an MRI and lumbar puncture. Gosh, I mean, that sounds like it all progressed very quickly. Um, and I know that you were 
sort of diagnosed when you had your brain scans. And you talk in your book about seeing a large white blob on the scan, which you felt shouldn't be there. Um, and the diagnosis given to you, I think it was, it sounded as though it was almost given to you flippantly, like, oh, you know, don't worry, you've got this type of tumour, but actually it's treatable. How did you feel in that situation? So I'd had my MRI done and was called back the same day for the results. I did have a scheduled appointment a week later, but unfortunately for me, they obviously decided that this was quite important and called me to say they'd had a cancellation, could I go back in, which I, I now think was probably a ploy just to get me back in there. Um, and I just recall walking into the room, but immediately actually when I was there, you know, people were treating me a bit differently and, you know, I was asked if I was in any pain and, and things like that. And I, and I remember thinking to myself, this this isn't right. But I, I knew during the scan something wasn't right because of the way people were behaving around me. And so I walked into this room to see the, the consultant and he already had the images on his computer screen. So I literally walked through the door and there it was, this white golf ball-sized blob, which... You didn't need to be a brain surgeon to work out that it shouldn't be there. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it was, it was, I suppose, quite flippant the way he told me. Um, he, he didn't actually come out and say, you've got a brain tumour immediately. I had to kind of, I was pushing him and, mm. you know, what is it then? Is it a brain tumour? What are you going to do about so it? So they said it was an acoustic neuroma yeah, without yeah. any sort of context. Yeah, no I don't know about you, but I hadn't heard one of those going back a couple of years. So, okay. And you talked about the fact, um, well, those emotions you had knowing that, hang on, it's a he's categorised it in this brain tumour category and people die of brain tumours. Mm. And, and you talk in your book about having gay you know, a whole load of emotions sort of overwhelming you. How did that all feel? I felt like I was almost sort of swept up in this little bubble of just me and emotion, really. Um, I think immediately I felt numb. Then I felt quite angry. I think after that came the fear and the upset, you know. Um, I went away. I left the hospital and I, w I was just... Yeah, numb, I think, describes it. And I think you probably go into that zone as a way of sort of self-preservation, you know. You, you cut yourself off to everything else and all you can think about is this, I've got this thing in my head and I don't want it there and it needs to be gone. And it, it was really challenging because I was, I was sent home that day and that was it. There was no further contact with anybody. Wow. So I didn't actually know an awful lot about the tumour itself other than what I googled oh which is never a good thing <laughs> no it's not <laughs> I mean that that's really frightening isn't it yeah. um to receive a diagnosis like that to not really have much information or resources or understanding mm -hmm. about what is actually going on and the fact that this thing is present in your head yeah. Throughout your book, you talk about dealing with doubt. And in in your book, you actually capitalise the word doubt. I almost feel as if it's a person, you know, this or this thing that's there throughout, you know, when you're making decisions about your treatment or whether you're going to tell your family. And you also talk about the support you had from, I think, your friends in the Navy who are incredibly stoic and they were kind of saying, you know, you can carry on, you can get on with it and, and this is you're going to be absolutely fine. How did you deal with doubt sort of in your day-to-day -day life? 
It was easy to sort of personify doubt in the book, um, I think, because it was such a constant. It was almost like having a person there. You know, people often describe anxiety and depression as having a black cloud that follows you or a black dog that follows you around, and it was very much like that. Doubt became a character, I feel, just because it was so constant, you know, mm. even... Even on the good days, it was almost like it was just sat in the corner, just waiting for that opportunity to sort of raise its head and and to sort of put a spanner in the work of any plans that you were planning to make. You know, mm. um, yeah, it was it was it was interesting writing about doubt, and it, it was just a, a way for me, I think, to try and get that across to people. Mm. You know, that I think I mentioned. You know, at one point he'd he'd come back and he was sat there with his cap and his slippers quite comfortably. You know, um, and it was ve- it was very much like that. Okay, I think that's really interesting because we all experience doubt, don't we? You know, and I'm sure our listeners who perhaps have brain tumours or know someone affected by a brain tumour will be experiencing very similar emotions. And I think you come across as someone so incredibly strong. And I think it's it's really amazing to see that you know, despite all those doubts that you had, you you've had you've made amazing and incredible progress and accomplished brilliant things, and it just shows that really you can put your mind to something and really really help yourself along the way, and it's brilliant. So, I think you talked briefly about looking on Google and finding out about um, what type of tumor you had. We've also talked about the role of support groups before um, and the sense, I think you said perhaps in your book, that actually there's a lot of catastrophizing and some negativity sometimes. I mean, what's your experience of support groups, good or bad or? A bit of both, really, yes. Um, There is definitely a place for support groups and in those early days, they were a godsend to me um, because I really was not in a good place. I was very physically unwell I was also struggling mentally to get my head around you know what was going on and like you say we we look at Google and I think the first the first thing that came up was on the Macmillan website so Macmillan you instantly associate with cancer and that was just terrifying so it was good then to sort of I mean I didn't realize the wealth of support groups that there are out there online particularly on like Facebook you know, some are official ones run through charities, some are sort of like spin-offs from people involved with charities, and they all have a place. But what I would say to anybody is that whilst there is good advice on there, there's also, there, there can be quite some considerable negativity because obviously people who are doing okay don't have a need to go back to those support groups. So very often it's people who have had the, the worst outcome. And it's... It's always, you know, I will always point out to people that they should go onto these websites, get what they need, and then kind of step back from it a little bit and just put it all into perspective. You know, it's a bit like going shopping. You don't go and buy everything in the shop, do you? You just take what you need at that time. And that's the approach I I tell people to have with support groups online. Yes, they're great. um, But yes, you know, it is very easy to get sort of swept up in what's going on in Mm. other people's lives. Mm. And it's not always good. And, you know, everybody's situation obviously is different to yours. So just, you know, there is a place. They are a great form of support, particularly if you haven't got much understanding around you at home or in the workplace. They're great for sharing of resources, but equally there can be a negative side to them as well. And you... 
I mean, absolutely. I think everything on the internet, there's always a good and a bad side to it, isn't it? That's the power of the internet. But there's some incredible charities that you have worked with and had support from. I think the British Acoustic Neuroma Association is one of them. Um, Tell us about them. Okay, so they were formed to support patients and the families with British um, with British acoustic neuromas, obviously, <laughs> with acoustic neuromas. They were the first, I think they are the only charity in the UK that support people with this kind of brain tumour, which is great because there's no other sort of specialised charity out there that I'm aware of. They have been extremely helpful. They have a lot of information online um, with regards to um, supporting patients, their families, helping to explain what an acoustic neuroma is, how it's going to impact them, what treatment options there are out there. They even have information for employers. If you're struggling to explain things like this to your employer at work, there's all sorts of information out there. They also run um, regular face-to-face support groups. And throughout lockdown, um, they very quickly set up online group discussions as well, which was was brilliant because obviously, you know, if you're going through that, and then thrown into the middle of a pandemic as well, you can feel very isolated. Absolutely. So those online sessions were a godsend and, you know, I was happy to be a part of hosting those. And they've actually continued. So they're, they're really good in a way because I've met people through the online sessions that I wouldn't perhaps have met through just going to my local meeting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they are brilliant. and um, They're a very supportive charity. Um, I've done a lot of fundraising for them in the past and, you know, I'm proud to be an ambassador for them now as well. They sound absolutely fantastic. And I think the message there is, isn't it, that there you can find loads of information online about your tumours and things affecting you, but actually the charities are also there for support and resources and to guide you through and be that helping absolutely. hand. Um, so that concludes the first part of this podcast. Stay tuned for part two um, when we're going to be talking about Sarah's treatment and the exciting uh, physical pursuits that she has pursued since her diagnosis. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening. You can catch the BBK free speech podcast on all listening platforms. Goodbye.